So this morning I want to speak a bit about right effort. And uh, so the last few days we spoke about the second training, which was about ethics. And that's, you know, about restraint in terms of, you know, restraining from unwholesome activities, actions and speech and livelihood and cultivating wholesome ones and uh, that's the foundation for the next training, for the training of the mind, you know, in terms of steadying and stabilizing the mind. And here it's called concentration and you know, I think that's a bit of a narrower uh, translation of the word samadhi, so I'd rather like to call it stability, steadiness, stillness of mind. And uh, you know, right effort is one of those three trainings and you know, they're about mental restraint. And you know, if there is a good foundation of ethics, it's, it's generally much easier to uh, you know, come to a stability of mind. So that's, that's the basis to start from. And then right effort, right mindfulness and right samadhi, preparing the mind for insight. And then that results in, in wisdom, which is, uh, spoke about that, right view and right intention or right thought. So they all work together. And I think the first day I mentioned is like a, a cable, you know, which consists of eight strands which are intertwined and because of that it's a very, can carry a, a heavy weight, you know, when the ignorance, greed and hatred, when they run high, the cable is very strong and it can keep us restrained to what is wholesome, hopefully. Or it's going to get stronger and stronger, you know, as we go along. And uh, a good uh, image, you know, for how the third training operates is, for example, if you imagine if you want to cut a, a bunch of grains and we need like a, a sharp <coughs> blade to cut it and that, that would, would be compared to wisdom. Wisdom cuts through and then the stability group, right effort, right mindfulness and right, and right uh, concentration hold the, the bundle of grain so that wisdom can cut through. And uh, you know, right effort provides the energy, you know, the, that the blade has a weight behind it and also that, the, that we grasp that bundle of grain. And right mindfulness provides the, the steadiness, you know, staying with the object, not jumping around and uh, the concentration focuses and unifies, you know, hold it together and then wisdom cuts through and then we can reap, you know, the fruit and we can make bread from that grain and, you know, and that's how wisdom becomes, the wisdom becomes integrated, we digest it and it becomes part of our being, a knowing, you know, which is also a seeing which means, you know, when we go through life, it's not, we don't have to think about what did the Buddha say about this, or what did I hear about that, but it's, it's part of the seeing. When I was giving this example about, you know, the beautiful glass we are drinking from and we are enjoying the beauty of it, you know, and the splendor, 
you know, of, of something really beautiful which really uplifts the heart, but in the same time we also know one day it's going to break. And this is a knowing, you know, which is also a seeing where this is Panya, this is what wisdom is all about, it's not a knowledge, you know, in, the, in intellectual knowledge, but it has been digested and brought down into the heart. And, uh, you know, that wisdom then informs again, you know, uh, the ethics training, and then the ethics training gets even, you know, provides an even stabler foundation for the mind to become stable and steady. And then, you know, wisdom cuts even deeper, and it's, it's an ever-increasing depth of insight, you know, which becomes more and more stable, and that's, you know, what the Noble Eightfold Path is all about. And it's not a kind of going up, 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 it's more like going down, 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 you know, into the depths of reality, and it's a, it's a very humbling process, because it you know, lets us see the myriad layers of ignorance, you know, which we project onto reality. And then, you know, from this uh, wrong seeing, we act out in ways, you know, which currently, you know, are reflected back to us in terms of climate change in particular. And I think you would all probably agree we have entered uncharted territory because it's getting more and more uncertain, you know, how we're going to, as a global community, tackle that issue, and if we'd be able to do it. And, you know, in the light of this, it's, it's kind of even more mind-boggling to speak about right effort. What is right effort really here? in a situation like that, you know, where there's so much uncertainty, so much unclarity. We have already made a lot of mistakes. We have lost a certain trust in our ability, actually, to tackle this. And, uh, you know, how to work with this. And I brought a quote today from uh, the only uh, message we have heard, you know, Ajahn Chah has ever been uh, hand written to Ajahn Sumedho. And because Ajahn Chah wasn't a great letter writer, so he had one of the monks writing a short message to Ajahn Sumedho when he became abbot of the monasteries in England, you know, and Ajahn Chah knew from his own experience that's going to be a very messy affair, you know, to set up monasteries and to be the abbot because the abbot is usually the garbage bin of the monastery, you know, where everybody comes and throws everything in. <laughs> and the abbot just needs to make space, if, if he or she can. And I think he wanted to encourage Ashan Sumedho. And he wrote this. Whenever you have feelings of love and hate for anything whatsoever, this will be your aids and partners in building Paramita. And the paramita are the transcendent qualities, you know, which the Buddha has been uh, cultivating over many, many lifetimes. And in the Pali Canon, that's are ten qualities. The two most important ones are patience and equanimity. And there are others like generosity and uh, wisdom, truthfulness. But you know, with, um, 
Patience and equanimity are the most important ones. They encapsulate all the other ones, actually. So whenever you have feelings of love and hate for anything whatsoever, this will be your aids and partners in building paramita. The Buddha Dhamma is not to be found in moving forward, nor in moving backwards, nor in standing still. This sumedo is your place of non-abiding. And non-abiding is a sophisticated scriptural way of saying, you know, keep an open mind. You know, don't preempt what's going to happen next because of fear or because of desire. Keep an open mind, and that's what right effort is all about. It's not necessarily about making something happen, you know, forcing something to happen in the mind or externally, but it's about, you know, keeping steady with what is presenting itself, and then from that empty steadiness, right action will flow. And uh, that's also, you know, what wisdom is um, real. It's, it's, it's not like a set of instructions, you know, which we are kind of thinking about, but it's, it's the digested experience of the teaching within our own lives, you know, then it flows forth as wisdom. And the word panya is the Pali word for wisdom. And if we look at the composition of that word, it actually, you know, could be translated as before knowledge. You know, before knowledge is projected onto what's happening, there is something else, you know, out of that openness flows the Noble Eightfold Path, really. And uh, I've been thinking, you know, for a, a synonym about what the non-abiding is, and then I, I think back a uh, long time ago in the late 80s, I was living on an island in the south of Thailand with, with fisher people, and, uh, you know, everything was, was around boats, you know, without a boat you couldn't be on those islands. So people from very you know, early age, they learned to kind of you know, jump on boats and walk around on boats and they had a tremendous stability you know, in the midst of the waves. You know? And then when sometimes the tourists came and they just, when they step on the boat, they all just bang, bang. <laughs> and that, that's the, that kind of effort which is needed you know, to have that flexibility. It's not like a, a square kind of an effort, you know, I'm just going to do this, whatever happens. It's not a stubbornness, but it's, it's, a, it's a flexibility, you know, which can go with the roll with the bunches, I think, is, is um, how it's said in English. You know, that kind of an effort. And it's, it's, it, it doesn't have... It doesn't have like a preconceived con notion what necessary, what the next step needs to be. But it, it kind of, there's an improvisation in there, you know. Because it's, a, it's an openness to take in the situation and, and to adjust a, as we go along, you know. But within the template of the Noble Eightfold Path, and in particular, you know, if the going gets really tough, then we, it's particularly important to 
always reflect on, on the, the ethics, you know. Because that really keeps us going into the right direction. So, you know, it's not about forcing the wholesome to happen, but it's much more about removing the obstructions. And then the wholesome will come forth, you know. It's like, you know, I'm sure you know those photos, you know, where people try to force a smile, you know, and you know immediately that wasn't real, a smile, you know. <laughs> or, you know, some people who have like a facelifts, you know, you can see or certain you know, things done to their face and, and it's just like, it's not a real face anymore, it's like frozen face. Mm -hmm. and, there's, and you know, that's, you know, if we try to force something to happen, it's not going to be real, it's not going to be alive. But it's, it's some a semblance of it, you know, and, and that's not good enough, you know, because it's not really responding to what is needed. So, it's much more about removing and letting go right effort than about gaining something or making something happen. And it also it comes you know, from that uh, understanding that, for example, you know, when we were speaking about the Brahma Viharas, it's like Ananda Bodhi was teaching about removing the curtain. You know, they're already there, they are facets of awareness, those Brahma Viharas. And if obstacles are removed, at least temporarily, you know, in the meditation by stilling the mind, then the Brahma Vihara is, is shining forth, you know, like a light. It's already always there, but it's covered over by the you know, temporary hindrances. Or it can be also compared, you know, to the vast sky. And then when a cloud moves through, it moves through and temporarily, you know, it covers over the sun. But then when the cloud moves further away, the sun comes out again. And sometimes you know, the sun doesn't come out for a long time. And when we had a Lokavihara in the outer sunset, you know, the sun wouldn't come out for two, three months in the summer. And sometimes I thought maybe there's no sun underneath all of this fog, you know, but there was one afterwards, always, until now. So it's, you know, that uh, capacity to keep the mind open and to see, you know, what is there, you know, which, which kind of clouds the mind. And then work with those uh, hindrances and out there in the foyer we have a, a chart of the five hindrances if, if you haven't heard about them or have forgotten the list. And, you know, and right effort is geared towards preventing unwholesome states from arising and, you know, and supporting wholesome states. And there is a, is a list in the scriptures and they are called the Four Great Endeavors. And the first one is pre preventing the arising of unwholesome states not yet arisen. So, for example, it speaks about the latent tendencies, you know, which are in our mind, you know, those grooves we have been cultivating over lifetimes, probably, you know, and preventing them from arising by kind of, you know, paying attention to our 
habitual unwholesome mindsets and working with them. Then the second great endeavor is abandoning and removing the unwholesome states that have already arisen. So that would be the hindrances, you know, which are out there in the foyer. And there's diff <laughs> on the wall in the foyer. Excellent, yeah. And uh, in, the, in the suttas, the Buddha speaks about five different techniques, you know, how we can abandon those unwholesome states which have arisen, and I just shortly mentioned them. So the, the hindrances, each hindrance has an antidote, like ill will, antidote would be metta, desire, the antidote would be reflecting on impermanence, sloth and topor, the antidote would be open your eyes, take a deep breath, eat less. And sometimes the real thing is to get, a, get good sleep, you know, if you're really tired. Then the third one is uh, restlessness and, and worry. And the antidote would be, you know, take a really simple meditation object like mindfulness of breathing. And the, f and the fifth one is doubt. And then, you know, that would be go to ask somebody who might help you to clarify that matter or read something up or Google it. <laughs> <laughs> so that's the first of the five techniques. Then the, the second one is, is uh, it's called Hiri Otapa. And they are called the two guardians of the world. And one is self-respect, hiri, and otapa is respect for the wise. So, for example, you know, before we are doing something, to reflect, you know, is that really something I want to be known for doing? And the otapa is, you know, is that something the wise would respect if I'm doing that? So that's, that can help, you know, to kind of make a little fire break if needed. And I, you know, in, at Amaravati, at the monastery where we lived, we had those two guardians of the world beautifully painted at the entrance of the temple. And in Thailand, many temples have them. They look like kind of big devas with moustaches and beautiful armors, you know, and they are standing there. And uh, they basically want to remind you before you go into the temple, you know, consider this. And when we were in Amaravati, uh, we often had school classes, you know, coming through and then one of the monks or nuns would guide them through the monastery and show them their different things. And I remember always the children, how they loved those guardians. They were like very, very tall, like three meters tall or something. And it was interesting, you know, when the children were really young, they really loved those guardians. And when we were speaking about it, they really loved the concept, you know, of self-respect and respect for the wise and when they got more like teenagers you know they got really, <laughs> they were really kind of got really kind of annoyed you know <laughs> and so that innocence you know that they couldn't anymore show that that was actually a very powerful way of looking at life you know they just were in that age where that wasn't really cool you know it was very sweet to see I never forget that it was really 
very lovely. When the, the little kids particularly, they were really kind of, wow. And then the third technique is deliberate diversion of attention, you know, if, if something is really kind of consuming us to deliberately look at something else. For example, with pain, that can work sometimes. And uh, I've read in, uh, or heard in one of the talks of Joseph Goldstein, he was speaking about what was called the marshmallow experiment, where they made a test, you know, with little children and, you know, giving, having them come into a room and then sitting in front of a plate with treats, you know, and saying to them they can have one of those treats, but if they can wait, you know, until the, the leader of the experiment, he's just going to go out and come back in a few minutes. If they can wait until he comes back, they can have two. And then there was a camera inbuilt and they were watching, you know, what the children were doing. And there was such a range of reaction from the children, you know. Some were, you know, kind of like kind of fidgeting and others were like just jumping up and down. And some were like using tricks, you know, just eating a little bit and pretending they haven't eaten anything. And there were just so many different ways how they were relating to this. And... Uh, and those, you know, who were able to divert their attention from the plate with the treats, they could really kind of keep it together, you know. Whereas those who didn't think of that method, they couldn't do that, you know. So the, having that capacity to delay gratification is a very important ingredient on the path, and it's renunciation, of course. And, and it's also, it needs effort to do that. And the fourth one is looking directly at what's happening and investigate why it has such a strong hold on the mind. For example, you know, if we consumed by anger about something and then looking underneath, there's some kind of a fear there, you know, what is it? And then rather than, you know, kind of thinking and scheming about what's going on here with the anger, going underneath and being with the emotion, you know. And and letting, you know, transforming that, freeing up that energy. And the last one is, you know, forcibly suppressing, you know, in, in a situation where you're afraid that you might do something you later regret, then he says, the Buddha says, you know, putting the tongue on the roof, pressing the tongue on the roof of your mouth and really forcing yourself not to go down that lane. So they can't be like the last resort if everything doesn't work. But usually, you know, it wouldn't necessarily lead to a lot of wisdom. So, but it can't be a solution if nothing else works in the moment. So this was the, the techniques for abandoning unwholesome states that have already arisen. And then the next group is arousing wholesome states which have not yet arisen. And that's what we are trying to do here, you know, in the meditation. And, and, you know, in a short, in a nutshell, those states, those wholesome states which not, have not yet arisen are what's called the seven factors of awakening or, or the seven factors of enlightenment. Mindfulness, investigation of dhammas, energy, joy, 
tranquility, stability of mind and equanimity, those seven. You know, in, in one way we can say that what we are doing in the meditation is we are training those seven factors of enlightenment and they are the path to awakening and they also constitute awakening. So, you know, to just give a little example, you know, if you sit down and you, you kind of bring up mindfulness, you look at your experience and then you see the Dhamma, you know, in your own experience. For example, you notice impermanence and that seeing, you know, arouses energy, interest. <coughs> and then, you know, if you, then you see the, basically, the Dhamma within your own experience and that brings a, a, a measure of joy, you know, it's really working. And then having a measure of joy, you know, gives the mind the possibility to relax and it becomes still and then it focuses and a focused mind, you know, has a measure of equanimity and unshakability and then that, you know, brings more mindfulness and then there's a deeper seeing and then more energy gets activated and so on and so forth. Again, it's like working together, it's a process. And those seven factors of awakening, this is what needs to be cultivated and that's the sum bonum of the wholesome factors. And the last one is maintaining and strengthening wholesome states already arisen. So for example, you know, to remember every day, you know, there's actually many times when the mind is actually having in a wholesome way. Because as another body was saying yesterday, we have a tendency to always look at the negative, you know, this is our evolutionary heritage. And it has, you know, been very important when we were, you know, in the jungle and there were like all kinds of things waiting around the corner. But nowadays, you know, to live in that way is, is uh, not really helpful. So we have to make an effort, you know, to notice when there are wholesome states in the mind. For example, one or several of those seven factors of enlightenment, to just notice it. Because if you notice it, welcome it, you know, strengthen it, cultivate it, it's going to become more, you know. Noticing the wholesome. And there will be a, it will it will re-arise a little bit easier the next time. So this is those four great endeavors: preventing the arising of unwholesome states not yet arisen, removing the unwholesome states that have arisen, arousing wholesome states not yet arisen, and maintaining and strengthening wholesome states already arisen those four great endeavors and it's you know it's like an art at different times we have to apply different skillful means and as I said before you know like if you're jumping on a boat on a narrow boat and then you have to kind of find your way forward nobody can tell you exactly how to do it you have to feel it out you know and that's the same with the practice we can give you the tools you know we can give you the lists but then you have to know which one is the right one and we learn by making mistakes and that's fine, you know, that's part of the practice. 
we learn a lot from making mistakes. And, uh, you know, in this time of rampant climate change, where it looks like we have made a lot of mistakes, actually, we can still learn from those mistakes, you know, no matter what the result will be. And I think that's really very important in the practice, because we don't know, yeah, in the practice, you don't know when you realize full enlightenment, but you still practice. And the same, you know, with the current situation. We don't know if we'd be able to solve it in the way we think right now it needs to be solved, but that's actually the same mind who produced the problem in the first place, so I wouldn't trust that too much, really. But it's much better to, you know, to kind of <coughs> take whatever is arising, whatever is happening, taking it onto the path, using it, you know, for removing obstructions in the mind, keeping an open mind and then responding from that open mind as full as we can and the rest is not up to you or up to me. Because, you know, evolution isn't like under the control of anybody. But we certainly you know, can do our bit. And the best way we can do our bit is if we remove the ignorance you know, from the mind so we can really see what's helpful. And I'm not uh, thinking you know, that this is an easy thing to do, but I think we have a lot of good instructions and a very good template with the Noble Eightfold Path, so we can try. And as we go along, we learn from our mistakes, and, and that's what our human life is all about. You know, the Buddha has countless lifetimes as a Bodhisattva, you know, breaking all of the precepts, doing all kinds of things, but always trying, you know, to speak the truth, to act upon truth as much as possible in the moment and then it's gonna go towards greater wisdom and compassion you know and that's all we can do really and uh, I'd like to end with a, a poem by our friend Matty again you know from the book of the Bikuni poems and this time it is Bhadra, who is speaking, and Bhadra means lucky. <coughs> you always considered yourself lucky because things seemed to work out the way you wanted. Now luck has a different meaning. Lucky to be walking a path that finds peace in the arising and passing away of each present moment regardless of how things work out or don't. Lucky to be walking a path that finds peace in the arising and passing away of each present moment, regardless of how things work out or don't. So now we can sit for another 15 minutes. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.